Hello and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about the intersection between the queer and the historical in media. I'm Jason. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about the 2002 novel Fingersmith and its 2016 film adaptation The Handmaiden. The content warnings for this episode are as follows. Sex, pornography, including exposure to minors, physical abuse, sexual assault, including mentions of bestiality, murder, specifically a stabbing, mental institutions, including abuse of patients, child abuse, suicide and attempted suicide, one instance of swearing, torture, and the Japanese occupation of Korea, colonialism and racism. Before we start, we'd just like to note that we are recording in a new apartment that Eli and I have just moved into, and so the sound quality on this episode may be a little different to some of our previous episodes. Uh, If it is worse, we apologise, and we will seek to improve that as we go forward. So we have both read the novel and both seen the film. However, we did do this in a different order. Yes. Eli, you read the novel first. I did. And then watched the film, and I did the opposite and so i don't really know which one we're going to talk about first i think we're probably just going to talk about both of them yeah we're just going to talk about all in a big mix up it'll be fine (laughs) yeah so my first question is i guess which one did you prefer and what did you think about them sort of generally i don't think i have a simple answer to which one i prefer i feel like if you like average out how i feel i prefer fingersmith the book but i feel like the movie had greater highs and lows. So at its best, I think I liked the movie more. But there were also parts of the movie where I was like, nah, no, 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 I don't want this. Okay, interesting. Yeah. What was the other part of your question? <laughs> uh, just sort of how you felt about okay. them generally. Um, like, did you like both of these texts? Or did you think they were both bad? Did you think they were both good? They were both okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do feel like I got somewhat of an idea yeah. based on your answer to the first question. Uh, so regarding the book, I expected to not like it because I'd heard a lot of reviews that were basically like, it's slow and boring and pointless and it sucks, basically. Mm-hmm. Specifically, people reviewing it kind of like when the movie came out. Being like, wow, this amazing new movie based on this book that sucked. <laughs> um, and I actually quite liked the book, but then I felt it had like diminishing returns in terms of its quality. As, um, it, as it wore on. As it went on. Yeah. So, like, you know, it's a queer book. It's about a heist, essentially. It's in a historical period. Like, it didn't have to work that hard for me to be on board. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and for the first, like, two parts of the book, I was like, yeah, I'm here for this. This is great. Even when it decided to tell the first part of the book again from a different character's point of view, I felt like it, like, did enough with that that it earned those 100 pages or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was kind of like, oh, okay. And then it just kept going, and eventually it stopped. (laughs) And at that point, I was like, I'm fine with that. Yeah. So overall, I did enjoy it. I don't think I'll read it again particularly quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, overall, like, good, sure, fine. I'd been meaning to read Sarah Waters' book for a long time because, you know, she she's is. like one of those authors who gets talked about in like queer circles. Yeah, very like highly regarded. Yeah, queer author. Yeah, which is not super common in that she's highly regarded outside of queer circles. I feel as well. I don't know general. what happens outside of queer circles, but that seems <laughs> plausible. Um, um, regarding The Handmaiden, I guess my easiest, like least complicated feeling about it is that it was like visually gorgeous and I really enjoyed that Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed like the care given to lots of like individual 
scenes and individual objects and things like that. It made me think about like Hannibal mm, with like bits yeah. of like Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> I mean, yep, those, those are the two yeah. aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I enjoyed that. There's like stuff that it did with the plot and with characterization and so forth that didn't sit well with me having read the book first mm-hmm. that we can talk about more specifically. Yeah. And I think also, like, it's quite a long movie, and I just read a really long book, and so I wasn't in the right mindset. That's not the movie's fault. But, like, overall, I enjoyed both, is my answer. How did you feel? I feel like I have similar thoughts, and this is something we've experimented with a couple of times, where we do the movie and the book in different orders, and I feel like in this case, we've arrived at the kind of the exact same and also the exact opposite perspectives. Oh, interesting. Where, yeah, I enjoyed both of these texts... I found the movie better. Okay. And I found the book a little bit interminable at times. Yeah. I think because I knew, well, I at least thought I knew what was coming. <laughs> um, and I certainly did for the first two thirds of the book. We'll get into the specifics of the plot and the differences between the two yeah. um, in a little bit. But I found the last third of the book to be really tedious. Yeah, I found it to be also kind of tedious, but also like wrenchingly sad which is a terrible combination yeah no we'll get into that a little bit more later and particularly after having watched the film which i think pulls off the third act in a much more elegant way than the book in my opinion i don't think either of them succeeded fully (laughs) (laughs) i don't think either of them succeeded fully but i think the movie it's at least shorter and less convoluted it's certainly shorter i mean i think it's inarguably less convoluted as well yeah no no no, no, no. <laughs> that wasn't a like but it was definitely more convoluted yeah that's yeah but i i don't know i just feel like they have like potentially different problems yeah yeah i mean that's fair and we'll yeah we'll get into that a little bit but yes i agree that the movie was visually spectacular and i think that not only was that good just because pretty movies are good Mm. but also i thought that it strengthened a lot of the thematic elements of the text that the book tries to get across in some instances and i feel like the text benefited from being adapted into a film in ways that other texts often do not okay i'm interested to hear yeah. Or your thoughts along those lines. Yeah. Um, so before we get into that, let's go over the plot a bit, because um, there's a lot going yeah. on. The plot for both Fingersmith and The Handmaiden centres around a young woman who belongs to a sort of surrogate family of con artists and thieves, being brought into a plot by a slightly older man to rob a young heiress of her fortune. In both texts, the young woman is living under the thumb of her uncle, and in order to gain access to her inheritance, she must be married. Therefore, the man enlists the help of, in the book's case, Sue, and in the movie's case, Suki, to be the young woman's handmaiden and help convince her that the marriage is a good idea and that she wants to run away with this young man. The plan is that once they have run away, that the young heiress will be put into a mental institution and the fortune will then be split between the two con artists. In the novel, this plot takes place in the setting of Victorian England, whereas in the film, uh, it takes place in 1930s Japanese-occupied Korea. 
which is a significant difference. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, surprisingly, there's a reason why I'm talking about these plots simultaneously, which is that beat for beat for the first two acts, they are very similar. And this is where we're going to start getting into spoilers. So if you have not read the book or watched the film and you intend to and you don't want to be spoiled, please stop listening now, go away and read and or watch these texts, and then come back to this episode. Moving forward, the book and the film are both split into three parts. In the first part, the story is told from the perspective of the young fingersmith or thief and her experience being enlisted into this plot, and basically, in the end, the plot does succeed, and they escape, and the... uh, young man who is known as Gentleman in the novel and Count Fujiwara in the film does indeed marry the young heiress and then they arrive at the mental institution. Part one ends with the reveal that the heiress and the gentleman are indeed in cahoots and it is in fact the young thief who is taken into the custody of the uh, mental asylum. What proceeds is part two, which is the exact same story we've just heard in part one, largely, but told from the perspective of the young heiress. In the novel, her name is Maud Lily. In the film, her name is Lady Hideko. And it is revealed her backstory and her upbringing, whereas in the first part we got the story of Susan's upbringing. And then we see her interactions with her handmaiden from her perspective and then at the end of part two we arrive back at i believe pretty much the exact same place yeah with the internment of susan or suki into the mental institution there's so much plot in this book yeah that's simple <laughs> stuff after this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah as i've said earlier up to this point the plot of the novel and the film are largely indistinguishable aside from the obvious differences in setting and the names of the characters i believe it's pretty much beat for beat yeah basically what happens in both part one and part two from the two different characters perspective is that both of them have set out to swindle the other and to end up with the other one being interned in a mental institution however the character's fall in love over the course of their time together and both of them by the end of part one and part two respectively are feeling like they would prefer to escape together rather than to split the money with the gentleman however they both feel trapped by the situation that they're in and are unable to do so the end of part two is where the plot of the novel and the plot of the film diverge significantly in the novel And I'm sorry if I get some of the exact (laughs) details of this wrong, because the plot of the novel is very convoluted in part three. In the novel, what is revealed at this point is that Maud Lily is indeed not the noble daughter, and instead it is in fact Susan who is the noble daughter, and they were swapped at birth. And this largely concerns the character arc of a character who doesn't really get any screen time in the film. Yeah, this character's name is Mrs. Suxby, and she has basically raised Susan from birth. 
and effectively has primed Susan to be put in the position to be swindled eventually in order to gain the inheritance of Maud Lily and also then have Maud Lily back in her life as Maud Lily is Mrs. Suxby's daughter. You see how this is quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, that's leaving out, like, several things. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I just, yeah. <laughs> in the book, what basically happens is that Susan turns out to be a little bit more resourceful than Mrs. Suxby had anticipated, and also gets a little bit of luck in the form of a visit at the asylum from one of the serving staff who had been at the manor where she had been taken to go be the maid of... Miss Lily, and when she returns to her home in London, she finds Maud Lily there, who herself has only just found out the exact reasoning behind the plan and her origins as Mrs. Suxby's daughter, and basically both young women are very angry with gentlemen, or Richard Rivers, and in the sort of ensuing tension that follows, Either Maud or Mrs. Suxby stabs Richard. It's probably Maud, I think the implication yeah, the the is, is, is that it's Maud. Regardless, Mrs. Suxby is the one who takes the fall for her daughter. She is executed. Maud runs away. Susan doesn't really know what she's doing with herself. And eventually the two women find each other back at the manor where Maud's uncle, or I guess Susan's uncle, because Susan is the actual noble daughter, has died. And the two women find each other in this sort of semi-abandoned manor. And the book ends with them being together and a sort of happy ending, I guess, where um, I just realised we haven't even talked about pornography yet. No, there's so much <laughs> pornography in this novel. Oh, boy. So the other big reveal that happens at the start of the second act is that the books that Maud has been helping her uncle with, and he's obsessed with books and he's building up a big bibliography, are indeed all pornographic, and she's been reading out porn for men. Like, since childhood. Since childhood, yeah, yeah, at her uncle's behest. And at the end of the novel, she basically realises that she can make money for herself as a writer of this pornography, and that is kind of how they're going to maintain themselves. What's the situation with their money at the end of this? I believe they do get access to the money. Okay. But it is very convoluted. Yeah. And... Yeah, also by the end, you're kind of like, all right, whatever, like, end now. Yeah, yeah. I don't care if they have money or not. I want to go to bed. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. In the film, on the other hand, there is no switch of children. No. The two women are who they thought they were. (laughs) And what happens in the film is that Suki is able to escape the asylum with the help of some of her thieving family. Mm. And Lady Hideko is able to secretly drug Count Fujiwara after they have escaped and are effectively on their kind of honeymoon, I guess, um, as a newlywed couple. And she leaves him behind to be discovered by agents of her uncle. And the two women are able to meet up and with the help of a disguise, um, disguising Hideko as a man, are able to basically get onto a cruise ship and leave with all of the money, which has been in the film withdrawn from a bank and is in cash. And Count Fujiwara is taken back to the manor where he is tortured by the uncle, but eventually using 
a poisoned cigar, is able to kill both himself and the uncle rather than be tortured to death. Yep, that's sure what happened. Yeah, the film ends with the two women having sex mm-hmm. on a cruise ship. Okay, so that's a really, really, really basic overview of the plot. Both of these pieces of media are too long. Yeah, and they're both very dense. Yeah. Even though they both tell the same story twice, which you would think would mean that there would be less going on. So we might start in terms of the thematic discussion with the setting. So obviously the book is set in Victorian England. It, as one of the articles I read about this text alludes to, is not necessarily set in a realistic Victorian England. It's set in a sort of pastiche of Victorian England brought about by other texts of that time. So notably there's a lot of Dickens in this novel and a lot of the tropes of that time, so things like the mental asylum for women mm-hmm. and the kind of creepy manner out in the countryside and the switching of the two children are all kind of tropes of literature of the time. Yeah. And, yeah, certainly some of the analysis I was reading of this was sort of saying, well, this Victorian England didn't really exist in the way that we think it does, but... Yeah, certainly that is the pretense for the setting. I mean, I don't think that's so extreme that we have to be like, it is a pretense of Victorian England. Like, that's just kind of, like, inherent to historical fiction, right? Yeah, true, true. I mean, that's fair. I just thought it was interesting because, for example, the concept of the kind of hiding away of pornography, which is very much integral to this novel. Yeah. You know, and we all kind of have this idea of Victorian England, this place of very stringent moral codes and... Mm the hiding away of sexual desire. Yeah. And a couple of the articles I was reading were sort of saying, well, yeah, there was kind of this moral policing, but also it wasn't that pornography was necessarily hidden away from society Mm. in the way that is kind of implied by this novel. Okay. And rather that a lot of the moral restrictions were in place in response to the kind of presence of pornography in daily life mm-hmm. um yeah i mean there is a like scene in the book where like they just like walk into a porn store off the street and i was like oh yeah that's allowed i guess <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> on the other hand the film is set in korean occupied japan so japan occupied korea between the sort of late 19th early 20th century through to the end of world war ii in 1945 The film, based on the use of cars and a little bit of Googling, uh, Mm -hmm. is specifically set in the 1930s. Yeah. I don't know if that's ever stated in the film, but like... Not from memory. Certainly, it doesn't seem to be wartime, but it's clearly reasonably industrially developed by this point, um, in terms of the level of technology we see. Um, I wish we got to see more of the, like, whatever their standard for London is in this. Yeah, it is definitely the case that the book deals a lot more with the contrast between London and Briar, which is the name of the manor, than the film does. However, and this is something where, yeah, I think in the book, the different locations are a big source of contrast when it comes to the upbringing of Susan and Maud. Mm -hmm. In the film, I feel it's often slightly subtler things, I guess, although the film does kind of explicitly state some of them. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the visuals, the clothing, and the use of language. And so we get the thing where the fashion that they're respectively wearing is radically different at the start of the film when they first meet. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as in the plot of this film... 
Lord or uh, Lady Hideko is trying to fool Susan or Suki into being the one who is eventually placed in the asylum, their styles converge and overlap as the plot goes on. And that was something that I found like, quite distinctive and easy to follow in the film. Mm. But also the use of language. So in the film, Lady Hideko is Japanese and Suki is Korean. And when they meet, Lady Hideko chooses to speak Korean to Suki. Mm. And there's a big point made of the fact that she's speaking the language that is considered to be inferior by the colonial Japanese. The reason for that is revealed to be that she reads pornography in Japanese. And so she's very sick of that language and she doesn't want to use that language because she associates it with an activity that she finds repulsive. Mm. And certainly those distinctions in language and the association with class and the association with the kind of colonial oppression is very strong. So it's only a few years after this in 1939 and 1940 where Korean people were strongly encouraged to the point of being like pressured and sort of threatened to adopt a Japanese family name. Mm -hmm. And I believe also by that point there were no longer lessons in schools taught in Korean language at all. And so there was a kind of effort to, as in most colonial states, prioritise the culture and language and values of the colonisers over that of the colonised. And certainly this comes across in the film. There's, I believe, a line from the uncle where he says, when asked why Japan, like why does he prefer Japan over Korea, he says that Japan is beautiful and Korea is ugly. Yeah, I mean, that's a fairly, like, straightforward thesis on that, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) The other important piece of context there is that the uncle is, in fact, Korean and has become a sort of naturalised Japanese person as a result of marrying into a Japanese family. Mm. And the fact that his wife, his first wife, has died is the reason why in the film he, in fact, wants to marry Lady Hideko and therefore sort of reattain and consolidate his status as a Japanese man. In the book, obviously, there isn't that context and he doesn't want to marry Lord. No, he not only doesn't want to marry her, he just, yeah, like, wants her to never be married and to just stay exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. Where it goes. Yeah, so, like... I was going to say obviously, and it probably is obviously, neither of us really have a lot of insight into, like, Japan's colonizing of Korea. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot to add to that. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But I do think it was a very interesting way of making it, whilst it was beat for beat, basically the same plot, at least until all of the stuff happened, (laughs) Um, like, have a very similar vibe, but be very different. And it was interesting. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of the yeah, like things that the adaptation did that I don't have any problems with at all. Yeah. I think that was really cool. I do think there was quite a cute kind of homage in the film to the book and also to the book's themes that I just really enjoyed, which was the fact that the manner in the film combines the architectural styles of Japan and Britain. Mm. Yeah. And so there's kind of just this implicit acknowledgement of, you know, being uh, very respectful and very desirous of British culture in a way that's kind of like, yeah, we really respect the source material that we are working from (laughs) when we are creating this adaptation. But yeah, certainly in both novel and film, there is an implication of very stratified societies where there are lots of rules and where particularly 
the nobility live very structured, rigid lives that nonetheless are less desperate and overall easier, but where they are restricted in what they can do. Mm. And there's kind of a contrast that I feel is probably a little bit stronger in the novel because we do get a lot more time in London in the novel and we get a bit more of kind of Susan's thoughts on this contrast between the kind of freedom but also the desperation that comes from being poor in London and being trapped and bored but also safe in Briar. Yeah. So her uncle sucks, but let's talk about how much. Yeah, so so the uncle is terrible. Yeah. Uh, in both texts, he is abusive mm-hmm. and, I mean, he gets a small child to read pornography to him and other men. Yeah. Even if there was absolutely nothing else going on, that is awful. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we don't have to argue about that. Yeah. But there is more. But there is more. Part of why it's more confronting in the movie is, I think, just that it's, like, more confronting to see abuse than to, like, read a description of abuse, no matter how well it's rendered onto the page. Yeah. So that sucked. Like, the first time you see the child, Hideko, she's being, like, beaten by her uncle, and it's awful. Yeah. And this film is so full-on in, like, seven ways. But I wanted to, like, specifically talk about her uncle and his, like, weird sex stuff. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the, like, physical violence and so forth that he uses as a means of control. Mm-hmm. In the book, like, he's gross, but it kind of makes this, like, really explicit point that he has this, like, really academic interest in pornography, and it's, like, completely desexualized for him, and he talks a lot about, like, type fonts and stuff like that. And this is somewhat based on the historical figure that it's, like, very, very loosely that they've based this character on. Okay. Um, So there was a guy who created, effectively, the same kind of bibliography of forbidden pornography. I actually came across when I was doing my reading on stuff for an episode that's coming up. Mm -hmm. There was, like, a brief mention of a bibliography of pornography, and I was like, wait a gosh darn minute, but I... Yeah, it was almost certainly the same It was probably the same one. Yeah, yeah. All those two around, and they were, like, great rivals who occasionally had hate sex. Because, yeah, I did a little bit of reading about this historical analogue, and interestingly, whilst the main biography on him tries to portray him as being this kind of very sexual, you know, sort of deviant personality, one of the articles I read was actually sort of responding to that and saying, no, he's actually quite boring, and he just is a very, like, fastidious and, you know, nitpicky Mm. kind of guy who just collected a lot of texts and was very, very obsessive. One of the pieces of evidence they pointed to for the fact that it was more about the obsession than it was about the porn, is that he actually engaged in another similar project later in life where he tried to collect every image that had been made of Dante's Inferno. Oh, okay, sure. He has a particular type of mind. Yeah, and Um, so, yeah, it is definitely the case that, yeah, in the novel it's very desexualized, it's very disconnected from really the content. I feel like comparatively in the novel there's not that much time spent on the actual reading scenes. No. Or at least they're not kind of like staged in such a sort of significant way as they are in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it is much more clear in the film, particularly by the end of the film, yeah. um, and specifically in the film's final scene, or penultimate scene, featuring Count Fujua and the uncle. 
that he is sexually interested in his niece. Yeah. And even before that, it is clear that the other men who come along to these readings are getting sexually aroused Yeah. by the content that's being read. Yeah. Which... There's a few moments in this where it's like, kind of has a moment of comedy. And I like, don't feel like it ever really worked for me at all. So, like, there's a moment where she's, like, reading out the pornography, mm-hmm. and, like, it's clearly, like, a terrible thing from her point of view that she has to repeatedly do this. Yep. And there's, like, a guy who's, like, squirming around, and he, like, puts his top hat mm. in his lap, and I feel like it's framed as being quite comical, mm. and I was just like, I just don't care about that at all. And similarly, if I can draw off a big spoiler, there's <laughs> a scene where Hideko goes to hang herself, mm. and um, Suki, like, comes and, like, catches her mm. legs and won't let her do it. Mm. And then, like, she's surprised by something and she lets her go. And there's this moment where Hideko is, like, choking. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, I know, I know, I'm sorry. And she grabs her legs again. And I'm like, that's not funny. What are you doing? Yeah, that was the most sort of tone-deaf moment of yeah. the entire film, I think. There um, were a few moments like that throughout of it, like, prevented me from getting another level more on board than I was. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Because, yeah, for me, I feel that was probably the only moment where I really, like, was taken out of the action and was just like, what the yeah. hell? But yeah, I guess, like, there's also more explicit stuff if we return to the whole thing about her readings being, like, kind of intense staged theatre, almost, as opposed to her just, like, reading a book. Yeah, yeah, so they use props and yeah. have her demonstrate sexual positions. With a dummy and she, like, chokes herself and stuff. Yeah. And, like, that's a lot. And, I don't know, I guess I just wanted to talk about, like, what effect we feel it has to make the uncle, like, not only worse, but also, like, the whole kind of, like, sexual situation she's put into being way more sexual and way more overt, and, like, why that's there. Actually, that dovetails really nicely into something I wanted to talk about generally. Oh, good. Which is that I feel, in the film, there is a more black and white morality than in the novel yeah okay say more but i'm inclined to agree in the in the novel obviously with the additional twist of the daughters being switched i mean you basically get the reveal of an additional villain in the form of mrs Soxby. i don't know about you but i kind of see her as at least fairly villainous in terms of like you know, she had a long time to think about that plot, and she still went through with it. But regardless, even outside of her, I feel like the two leads, both of them are kind of more committed to screwing over the other one in the novel than in the film. In that sort of there are large portions of the third act where certainly Susan is out for revenge against Maud. Yeah, she sharpens a knife to go stab it with, and then Maud uses it to stab someone else. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, Susan in particular contemplates several murders. <laughs> I love Susan. <laughs> I do as well. She was, she was very interesting. Yeah. And also, generally, the women in the book are a lot more morally grey, whereas in the film, we don't necessarily get that, and we don't get the character of Mrs. Suxby or an equivalent, like, we get her for, you know, two minutes at the start of the film. Yeah. So we don't get that whole character arc. We also don't really get the, and I can't remember what her name is, but the housekeeper, or whatever it is, at Briar. Oh, yeah. In the novel, who's 
you know, quite awful. Yeah. And we don't get her interactions with Maud in an equivalent way in the film. Whereas what we do get in the film is that all of the men are awful, and all of the men are kind of awful in the book, but largely in the way of being greedy and out for themselves and after money, whereas in the film it is much more sexual. Yeah. Generally. Sexually violent. Yeah, well, and not only the uncle, but, like, also gentlemen. So Count Fujiwara in the film attempts to sexually assault uh, Lady Hideko. Whereas in the novel, his plot starts as an attempt to seduce her, and he quickly realises that she cannot be seduced. Although, as it turns out, she can be seduced, but not by... Not by you. Not by you. (laughs) But yeah, so even the man who, in the book, is very explicitly only out for money, and he says it a ton of times in the novel, that character in the film whilst he professes the same motivation throughout the first two acts, eventually does kind of fall prey to, you know, that kind of lustful male gaze mm. that permeates throughout a lot of the male characters in the film. Yeah. In fact, all of the male characters in the film. I don't think we get any yeah. male characters in the film who aren't kind of lusting after underage yeah. women. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't necessarily know how I feel about that as an adaptation decision. I think that... Perhaps the film is a bit more, maybe not necessarily more coherent, but certainly a little bit simpler in terms of the themes that it wants to address. Like, Mm. in the the book, I feel, partially because it is a 500-page novel as compared to a, you know, two-hour film. Two-and-a-half-hour film. Two-and-a-half-hour film. I'm saying that because I definitely resented the last half hour. (laughs) Yeah. I guess is able to draw out that distinction between the obsession with pornography and a kind of sexual fixation. Yeah. Whereas the film is kind of unable or unwilling to do that. Mm, hang on, willing might be the word. Yeah, and un- unwilling, I think, is the word. So I want to talk a bit about the two main female characters and what the book versus the movie did for them. But for a moment, can we talk about the like weird dungeon the uncle has? Yeah, okay, yeah. And talk about what? The yeah. hell? <laughs> yeah, so I have a note on this. <laughs> what the hell? I have a note on this. It's in all caps. Okay, please read it to me. And it reads, there's a fucking octopus. <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely so, a moment where I was like, are we doing a tentacle rape scene at the climax of the film? Question mark. And then we did it. And we did it. And that was good. And the octopus served no purpose. No. I mean, the octopus was sexualized. Yeah. Absolutely. a thing that I've had to say on the podcast now. <laughs> so, hang on. I'm going to provide a little bit of context. Please for, do! For people. Not that there's that much context nah. to be provided, but is there a basement in the book? No! This okay. is an invention of the film. The film was like, you know what this movie needs? A weird sex dungeon. Let's put a cephalopod in it. <laughs> I don't know if octopi is a I don't know what that word means. So in the film, there are several allusions made throughout the plot to the basement of the manor. And the pretext for the basement is that that is where the uncle keeps all of his printing materials, how he presses books together and binds the books and all of that kind of stuff. And at the end of the film, when Count Fujiwara is captured by 
men sent at the behest of the uncle and brought back to the manor, he is taken down to the basement, and it's the first time that we see the basement. Yeah. We've seen a flashback scene earlier in the film where I believe Lady Hideko is shown the basement, but we don't actually get to see it as the audience. Yeah, so... So we should also probably contextualize that a little bit in that she kind of realizes that her aunt, mm. who allegedly hanged herself, did not hang herself but was murdered. Yes. And then her uncle kind of says, you know, like as a threat, there's a bit of that coming out, I'm going to show you the basement now. And then we see this little girl's face in reaction to the basement, but we don't see the basement. I don't know if the octopus was there at that point. No, the octopus was definitely there because, okay. well, I say definitely, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure. Obviously, we, we don't see the octopus until right at the end of the film, but I was really intrigued for the whole film as to what was going on in the basement because they do play, like, sort of vague, watery, aquatic sound effects. Oh, do they? In those scenes where they're kind of talking about the basement they're like i definitely remember distinctly like this sort of faint like rushing water and stuff and being like what the fuck is down there is it time we tell the podcast audience that i can't really hear (laughs) 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 and i i don't necessarily know that that would have been obvious to most audiences but i was definitely super suspicious of that just because of the you know general association between Japanese popular culture and octopuses. Oh, man, yeah, okay. And the general tone of this film, which is it's a very kind of sexualized. Yeah. um, I mean, prior to us seeing the live octopus, we had seen, like, pornography of one octopus and one lady. Yes. Yeah, we had. In a picture. Yeah, so they had kind of set this up. They had kind of been like, no, don't worry, we'll get to the octopus. Yeah, and... I believe there's kind of an implication that the octopus was used to torture the aunt to death. I don't know. How would that be? I think that is the implication because of the idea that she doesn't have any marks upon her. So I think... I'm not following. So when the aunt is found hanged, the way that Lady Hideko figures out that she didn't kill herself is that she is reading about what happens to people when they are hanged. Yeah. And she says, well, her body should have been in this condition, her body should have done this, but it didn't. You know, she was just kind of in fairly perfect condition. And so my sort of presumption, based on how those scenes are filmed and based on the fact that we then see the octopus at the end of the film, is that, like, basically he threw her into the octopus thing and the octopus kind of drowned her. I feel like you have those little sucker marks. Yeah, I, I guess so cartoons as well. Cartoons have then... led me to believe. <laughs> Not those kinds of cartoons. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, you know, like the type that are made for children. Yeah, yeah, fine. yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's the case, and maybe I'm reading too much into that yeah. and linking Look, those things together. I think that any amount of like explanation of the octopus requires like work on the part of the audience and I'm not playing your damn game movie. Yeah, yeah, fair. There certainly is an octopus. I don't know, it's just kind of like there's already a dungeon full of like torture materials here. Like I get they're actually bookbinding materials, but we only see them used once and it's for torture. That is true. I was already willing to be scared of the room before there was an octopus there, mm-hmm. and the octopus just kind of made me confused. <laughs> that that is fair. It's the same color as the octopus in the pornography featuring mm-hmm. the octopus. Yep. Which you know is on purpose. Yeah. And I just 
Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's probably enough about the octopus. Yeah, but we had to go on about the octopus. And... We we did. So I guess we've talked a little bit about the sexualization of the film, mm. and we've talked a little bit about the other characters, but we haven't really talked yet properly about our two lead females and their relationship. Actually, maybe it's a nice like linking bridge between these two topics of conversation. Yeah. We could talk about the sexualization of their relationship. And talk yeah, okay. about how, you know, like, I understand, and you'll probably know more about this than I do, yeah. a common complaint of the film was the way in which the sex scenes were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like... I don't, like, actually have much to say on this, except that I understand that a lot of, like, queer women were like, hang on a second, I'm calling shenanigans when they saw the sex scenes. I thought you might have a, like, more useful comment to make. (laughs) Yeah, so certainly there was some controversy in response to the film about how the film portrays the two women and their sexuality. There were definitely a lot of comments made because the director is a man in comparison to, obviously, the novel where the writer of the novel is a woman, so the fact that she is writing these, you know, somewhat salacious sex scenes is obviously takes on a different context to a man directing a scene of two women having sex. I generally felt that whilst the sex scenes were stylized, it was not necessarily any different to how the rest of the film was stylized. Mm. Obviously, it's not necessarily an excuse. Like, obviously, you choose to style a film in a particular way, and they chose to style it in that way. What I did think was interesting about the film's sex scenes and the film's sense of sexuality, this is kind of on theme but like maybe slightly adjacent to what we were just talking about, is that I found it really interesting that for a film where there's a lot of power dynamics and there's a lot of kind of, you know, sort of pseudo-bondage scenes throughout the film, I found it really interesting that they never went to any form of power dynamic in the two sex scenes and particularly the final sex scene between the two characters in the film Mm -hmm. it is very deliberately mirrored and equal and there's no sense of a power dynamic between the two yeah that's true i suppose and i thought that was really interesting i thought that was a really powerful message to send particularly because i do feel like often in these kinds of plots what you often see is that you have a character who's kind of been traumatized or come out of a situation where they've been involved in this like terrible power dynamic abusive relationship and then they then engage in that same kind of behavior in their relationships Mm. and i thought it was really interesting that at the end of that film especially because i did kind of think they were going in a power dynamic direction with that relationship towards the start like the scene where suki has the thimble in her mouth kind of seemed to me to be hinting at a kind of power dynamic developing between the two of them in terms of their attraction to each other. Mm. But then the film, like, really veered away from that. I mean, what that, like, thimble thing does is kind of set up this kind of, like, motherly relationship between the two of them that is revisited multiple times, including in the sex scenes. Mm. Where, like, I can't remember what it does in the movie, but in the book it, like, specifically notes, like, I'd do this for children when they were hurting from a tooth, and, like, Mm. I'll do it for her now. And she kind of, like, explicitly says a few times, like, you're my baby, and, Mm. like, I'm your mother, and things like that. And, like, I can't remember which one, which I guess proves your point of, like, they're very equal in the sex scenes. Mm. But one is sucking on the other one's nipple, and I think it's Suki who says, like, oh, if I had breast milk, I would feed you right now. That's just, like... 
very present. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I do think that that's something that's present in the novel more so than it is in the film. Yeah, so there is clearly a bit of that in the film. Yeah. But I do think that the fact that the film ends with a sex scene that is very clearly on equal terms, like they're literally doing the same thing to each other. Yeah. And they're sitting in a very deliberately kind of mirrored pose. Mm. The thing about that scene is I don't think that scene necessarily works unless you film it in a very stylized way because I think it's maybe quite hard to film a scene where what you're trying to get across thematically is they have this very equal relationship that's not based around the kind of power dynamics that terrible men create. Mm. And the way that you're depicting that is by having them be somewhat mirrored. I don't really know that there's a way to do that without that seeming kind of stylized. Mm. Maybe, I guess, they could have done it in a less sexy way, but I don't necessarily know that that is a goal. But that said, certainly some people found the sex scenes to be overly kind of focused on objectifying the women. I can't necessarily speak to how, you know, women would react to that, but I didn't necessarily find them to be particularly titillating scenes in terms of I felt that there were clear kind of plot dynamics at play, particularly in their first sex scene, which is, I feel, Mm. the one that probably most people are referring to. Or the, like, second telling of their first sex scene, at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Oh, this movie's a mess. (laughs) It's not really a mess, but it's a lot. Yeah. And, like, certainly it's not like the film added a bunch of extra sex scenes. It adds one at the end. Although I would argue that that one is somewhat implied in the book anyway. Like, the book kind of ends with, we're together now, we're alone again. Yeah. (laughs) And we're in love, and we've acknowledged that love for each other. So, like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, those are certainly, like, more thoughts than I had about the sex scenes in the movie. The major thought I had about the sex scene in the movie was, like, oh, yeah, I always forget that I hate scissoring, like, way less than, like, queer women do <laughs> as a concept. <laughs> yeah, certainly the choice of sex act, that is something that the movie is kind of taking from nowhere mm. in that I don't think there's that much description of in the book yeah 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 from memory it's like a lot more focused on like kind of feelings and stuff as opposed to like and then my leg was at point a and so forth so yeah yeah yeah. you gotta change it (laughs) like you have to show where their bodies are it's a movie yeah yeah but yeah certainly some women find the depiction of scissoring in these kind of films to be like a little bit silly Mm. I think it is reasonable to critique, like, that's the thing that, like, men go to when they depict the lesbian act. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I think on the one hand, that's kind of fair in the sense that neither of them are necessarily depicted as being, like, experienced lovers who would know what they were doing in that respect. Although I guess, uh, Lady Hideko has read a lot of porn. Yeah. So, I mean... Oh man, this could be really meta. (laughs) And I mean, that is kind of part of the response that uh, Suki has when she finds out is that she's like, oh, so you are sexually experienced and you do know what you're doing. I mean, she's not really practically, but she is theoretically. (laughs) Yeah, I've Um, studied. studied. Yeah. But I think in the film's defense, the fact that it's not the only sex act that they engage in, like it's one of like several, I think is probably to the film's credit in the sense of showing a variety of different positions in terms of lesbian sex. I guess maybe that's, you know, also to the film's detriment in terms of overly sexualizing those characters, but maybe Maybe. you can't win in that respect. Maybe. So as part of this, like, first time they have sex, Hmm. Suki goes down on Hideko, Mm -hmm. and there's this, like, one shot 
like a point of view shot like looking mm-hmm. at Suki's face when yep. she's about to go down on her. Yep. And we see it like several times in the movie. Yeah. And it's a bad shot. It's like it's like a point of view shot of Lady Hideko's vagina. Yeah. Yeah. And it just looked dumb. <laughs> That's my point. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That, it's that just her bad. like staring directly at you and telling licking her lips and it's like, oh, I'm the vagina. Yeah. I mean... And I was like, all right, no, I can look past this. And then they showed it to me again for longer. And I was like, stop it! This is a bad shot. It certainly was a choice. I kind of tend to agree with you that it may have been a pretty bad choice. Yeah. Um, Just creatively. <laughs> like, but... it was like a really intense emotional moment. I started laughing. And then yeah. I feel bad. But really, it's their fault. Yeah. And I mean, we've already talked a bit about how this film sometimes undercuts emotional moments with funny shot choices yeah. and although unlike cinematography the weird thing where Asuki accidentally nearly hung Hideko yeah this clearly wasn't meant to be funny they were just like yeah and then like you're the vagina yeah yeah <laughs> anyway having talked a bit about the sexuality or at least the presentation of sex yeah between the two women I guess let's talk about the presentation of their sexuality and okay. how their relationship develops. Yeah. It's a bit tropey, both in the book and the film, mm. in terms of that kind of queer relationship that develops out of, like, uh-huh. living in very... Well, also okay. living in very close quarters yeah. and one person being the kind of maid or servant or serving person of the other... Mm-hmm. And, you know, pretense for sleeping in the same bed and dressing each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's fine. I don't think that's necessarily a, like, super harmful trope, but it was very tropey. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's weird to think about this movie and or book as being, like... And, well, especially the movie, I guess, being super tropey, because it was also, like, really weird. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, you know, this cliched movie. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess that might have been part of what the director was aiming for. So I read an interview where he was talking about how... He really wanted to adapt this novel, but there was already a BBC adaptation of the novel. Yeah. And he didn't want to make something the same as that. And it was, I believe, one of the writers or a producer, like someone he was working with, who came up with the idea of setting it in Korea. Hmm. So it wasn't actually his original vision. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, to set it in... I would be really interested to see the like non-existent movie that he would have made, just like set in Victorian Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Like... What? Um, <laughs> just on a quick note, I imagine that like we would not enjoy that BBC miniseries at all. Yeah, no, I've... <laughs> We've had enough of this material. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, in terms of the two main leads and their sexuality, it's not like 100% clear what their sexuality is presented as Yeah. Um, in terms of whether or not they're bi or lesbian. Yeah. But certainly in terms of the sexuality of the two main characters, I did find it quite interesting that for large portions of the book in the first two acts, it's not necessarily clear and both characters are kind of in denial a little bit about their sexuality. Mm. And so there is kind of an implication on both of their ends that they kind of have a default attraction to men that they just haven't necessarily kind of realized yet that i feel like both of them kind of assume until they realize oh i'm attracted to this woman yeah and i thought it was interesting because yeah you kind of get this first act susan is the bisexual female villain trope and in the second act maud is the 
bisexual female villain trope and then it turns out that neither of them are the bisexual female villain in the end and this i just sucks be was the bisexual villain all <laughs> i thought that was an interesting inversion of that trope i'm not necessarily certain that that was intentional but it was certainly something that i was thinking for the first two acts i had not considered this yeah, and, you know, the film kind of does a similar thing. And then, you know, ultimately, both of them kind of shy away from that in a very kind of wholesome way where, you know, they just love each other and are good. Mm. The last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of, like, specifically just queer content was the scene in the film that doesn't appear in the book where Hideko dresses as a man yeah. and presents as a man in order to fool Japanese customs, I yeah. guess, so they can go on their cruise ship. Yeah. And, I mean, firstly, it was just, like, good costuming and she looked really cool. But they didn't really go anywhere with that in terms of the character's gender identity. Yeah. It was just kind of a costume for that scene. Yeah. Which, again, kind of plays into a little bit of what I was talking about before in terms of that final sex scene where it's very much... The film is very, very strong in terms of being a total rejection of masculinity and power dynamics and all of that kind of inequality in sex. Yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely kind of, like, mentally checked out of the movie about that point. I was like, sure, I guess they're doing this. Whatever. Mm. Put on a suit. Go. Be free. <laughs> go on the spirit of Tasmania. But, like, you definitely could, if you wanted to, choose your own adventure of, like, interesting things to do with Hideko dressing up as a man at the end of the film. Where, like, mm. she's been forced into this very stylized, ultra-feminine persona by her uncle for years. And now she's like, what are the alternatives or something? But, like, it's not. That. at least not explicitly yeah no, it's just no, like no. a like little heisty device and i do like that it kind of like added more heist vibes to the film mm, you know mm. like we haven't had that many oceans 11 moments and <laughs> i feel like that's like one of the strong ones yeah um, yeah and it also gave us the really cute moment of suki like ripping off hideko's mustache and they're both giggling yeah and then they throw it into the ocean <laughs> and they like throw it into the ocean and they're like no our mustaches in our lives forever let's go have sex on the boat yeah yeah, you know, the film's rejection of masculinity is so explicit and so strong that, like, literally you have that scene where it's like they throw the moustache away <laughs> and then they go and have very lesbian sex that's just, like, completely removed from the concept of a penis. And then the final scene is Count Fujiwara being tortured and being threatened to have his penis cut off. And then, you know, his, like, final moment is being like, well, at least my dick is still intact. Yeah. Are we going to say a cigar is just a cigar hero? Would you like to, like, talk about the cigar and try and make that into a part of this, like... I think maybe the cigar is just a cigar. Right, Although he does, like... he does smoke a lot, I guess. He does and smoke And objectify lot, yeah. women, so, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, sure. But certainly his kind of pride at keeping his manhood, quote-unquote, intact in the face of torture as they both just kind of die. There's always with... too many, like, potential avenues for symbolism in that scene, where, like, the uncle, like, drills through his hand, there's an octopus in a tank right there, he's smoking a cigar, like, let me rest. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> and the whole scene is, yeah, kind of full of these masculine symbols that in the end are just kind of helpless and pathetic. Mm. And they both die in a basement. Yeah, okay. I feel bad for, like, whichever random servant eventually found them and was like, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that was kind of interesting in terms of the film having, I think, much stronger and clearer things to say about that 
in comparison to the book, which probably features more strongly relationships between women and other women. Yeah. Um, beyond the central romantic dynamic. And that's where we can maybe bring in Susan and Mrs. Suxby and head yeah. back to the book a little bit. Yes. So I only care about Susan and Mrs. Suxby. I don't care about the rest of this book. <laughs> that's not really true, but, like, I guess, you know, reading the book, my impression very much was, like, oh, yes, Susan, the protagonist, mm-hmm. and one of her major relationships, that of her and her surrogate mother. Yeah. And yeah, then absolutely. the movie was like, nah. And yeah. I was like, what? Okay, and like I also feel like the movie just kind of like generally undersold Susan. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like it just kind of by necessity of like the book being five hundred pages of introspection had to kind of like unnuance the characters' thoughts and so forth. And like, fine, I guess I'll accept that. Yeah, but I feel like yeah, it just kind of like not only decided was it ditching Mrs. Suxby, it was just gonna like ditch a lot of Susan as well, and I did not care for that. Yeah, and I think it's tough because if you're and I totally understand why they didn't do the twists. In the yeah, book. look, I'm not asking for the baby swapping back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that without the baby swapping, the introductory scenes where we establish Susan and Mrs. Suxby's dynamic and we establish that whole family situation and the kind of mystery of why Mrs. Suxby treats Susan differently to all the other babies. Sorry, something we haven't mentioned so far is that Mrs. Suxby farms babies yeah there's a baby farm whatever it's just like you're just gonna have to accept that <laughs> that's another thing that's kind of very like you know victorian england literature but yeah and without that kind of mystery that's being set up that will then be resolved later there is less of a need for all those scenes with mrs suxby but yeah i do agree that the film loses out a bit by not having that relationship because it is a really interesting relationship yeah. not only do i think that it kind of loses out in terms of their relationship but also just like so i feel that susan is kind of assumed by like various characters to just be like a naive foolish girl mm-hmm. and i don't think that the film is telling you that but i don't feel like it does enough to undercut that impression of her as just being like a naive little like provincial girl or whatever um, like, even down to small things, such as, like, Susan gets herself out of the asylum. And, like, yes, it's with the luck of Charles coming there and so forth. But, mm-hmm. like, she, like, consistently solves, like, problem after problem for herself and getting out of the asylum and then getting back to London and then once she's in London and so forth. And even little things like her friends set a fire and, like, that gives her the opportunity to get out of the asylum. She doesn't get herself out as explicitly yeah yeah and it is the thing where i think in the film they haven't spent all that time establishing that susan is a bit slower than the other thief children because mm. that's a big kind of point is like that she's a bit slower and she hasn't been raised to be as kind of sharp and quick-witted and knowledgeable mm. as the other kids and that's not really something that's established in the film and so i guess they felt there was less of a need to then undercut that later on. But yeah, certainly, I think, from the perspective of Susan's character arc, Act 3 is a lot more satisfying in the book. Unfortunately, in the book, it's also the case where it's incredibly tedious, I find. Like, yeah, she gets herself out of the asylum, and that bit is maybe okay, but then the whole bit where they get back to London and then, like she's kind of observing the house for a while and also we've already had all this from the perspective of Maud and there's just kind of misunderstanding after misunderstanding and then no one really knows what's going on and it's just very long and 
twisted and confusing. Mm. Um, I mean, like, you're objectively right, but also, like, as I've established, I only care about Susan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also feel kind of mixed about the whole, like, lengthy lead-up to Mrs. Suxby's execution being cut, because, like, it was awful, and it hurt me to read. Mm. But also, like, somehow I still want it to be there anyway. I don't know. I mean, it, I, it was never going to be there in the film after No, I know, I know. include that stuff in the first act, or in the third act. Just, like, the whole thing where... I found Mrs. Sucksby very interesting in terms of, like, what the hell? (laughs) You know, like, there's this, like, this whole thing, and it's from Susan's point of view, and it's, like, clear that Mrs. Sucksby just kind of, like, fundamentally doesn't care about Susan Mm. and just kind of, like, wants Maud to come to her. Yeah. And it's through, like, weeks of Susan being, like, this very, like, dutiful daughter throughout her trial and, like, lead-up to execution. It was just intense as hell. Yeah, no, you're right. Those, those scenes were really interesting and really good. Mm. And um, certainly, I think, the build-up of Susan's faith in Mrs. Soxby mm. and her just, you know, unwavering understanding that she has that Mrs. Soxby will help her out and that Mrs. Soxby's on her side and then the undercutting of that is a really good arc, and I feel yeah. all of the build-up was great, and then when you actually get to the scene, it's really confusing, and no one really knows what's going on for half of it, and, like, particularly Susan. Mm. And it did kind of feel like maybe the book just needed to kind of, for dramatic reasons, have it be revealed really quickly, so that... Like, the whole initial reveal of the, like, baby plot, mm. which goes on where, like, Maud's, like distraught like uh, like half faints like seven times low. yeah like in my head it's definitely at least 65 pages it's really long and it's yeah. overdrawn and it i feel loses a lot of the momentum that we've built up yeah it is kind of interesting i did i did feel in the book this is something actually we talked about way back in carmilla mm-hmm. when we talked about how the foreshadowing of carmilla being a vampire is really obvious um in that book mm. and the foreshadowing in Fingersmith is also very obvious. Like, Susan out and out says several times in part one that Maud knows more than what she's letting on. Mm. Like, she makes reference to it several times because in the narration of the book, she's narrating from the perspective of someone who's already lived through all these experiences. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that, yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously I knew what was going to happen because I'd watched the film. Mm. But also... Yeah, if you're reading it all carefully, I feel like you kind of do realise that, like, oh, okay, so Maud is going to double-cross her Mm. in some way. Obviously, you may not necessarily know the specific way, and I don't know, because I'm never going to have that experience of Mm. reading that book, because I'd already seen the film first. But I did feel it sort of pointed to a general thing with the book, which is that it kind of draws out the twists in a way that means that they don't actually shock you or like they shock you in the moment but then the book spends so long getting to the point of the characters getting to the point where you are yeah that it kind of lost a bit of the value and I, I think that yeah my reaction to the relationship between Susan and Mrs. Suxby like you've just talked about the stuff that you enjoyed about it and you talking about it reminded me yeah wow no some of the aspects of that were really good and really well developed but it was just so frustratingly executed oh poor choice of words I'm sorry. sorry, sorry. No, I'm keeping that in. That's fine. At the end, that I felt less good about it Mm. and was therefore maybe, you know, kind of less disappointed that that content wasn't in the film. Yeah. In that I quite enjoyed 
and thought were maybe a little bit more coherent, possibly just because of the limitations of the setting and the fact that there weren't as many characters, that I felt that the scenes in Brile or the scenes at the manor were the more compelling material to me. I mean, I don't think you could get, like, this plot into a movie in any kind of good way. Like, you do have to do a, like, miniseries or something. Yeah. And, like, you know, then we can discuss whether that's a good idea. But, like, if you were going to, that's what you'd have to do. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly that that third act um, was very, very, like, Charles Dickens. Made me think a lot of Bleak House, where... There's kind of this very convoluted plot. There's like a legal case in that that's like kind of similar to the whole like sort of legal chicanery regarding the will in in this novel. And yeah, it's all kind of overwrought and goes on a bit too long and there's a bunch of characters involved and like you only really care about one or two of them. <laughs> so it's like a stunning homage is what you're saying. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> no, like overall... I did quite enjoy both of these texts. I thought they were interesting. Yeah. I mean, as you said earlier, I, I would not read or watch either of them again. Yeah. I would maybe watch the film again with someone, but it wouldn't be for the sake of watching the film again. It would be for the sake of watching someone watch the film. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like i just go watch Hannibal. <laughs> I like That's get fair. everything that I'd want out of this movie from that. <laughs> Certainly aesthetically. Yeah. Certainly you could go a lot more in depth on the kind of class distinctions that we yeah. kind of mentioned a little bit and you could really go in depth and like weave together intersectional analysis on a bunch of these different things. Mm-hmm. Particularly in regards to the film, there's probably a bit more kind of ethnic analysis that you could do if you knew a little bit more about yeah. than I do about um Japanese and Korean history. Yeah, and I'd love to know more as well about, like, the use of language in mm. film. Yeah. Um, I'm sure someone who knows, like, literally anything about film could make interesting comments about cinematography as well, because my comments on cinematography are always restricted to, like, it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly the film was quite well shot, and I did feel like they established the tension really well. I actually read one of the reviews that was talking about how the scene with the thimble comes across way better and more intense in the film than it does in the book. And I'm not necessarily sure if you agree with that, but certainly this reviewer was saying, yeah, a scene that I found kind of confusing and sort of what was happening in the book, I found, like, really intense and interesting in the film. All right, like, I don't, like, remotely agree with that, frankly. But I I do think generally that the film was able to use a lot of, like, positioning of cameras, and particularly in the second act when they're doing some of the same scenes, but from the perspective of Lady Deco, that they were able to present them in a fresh enough way. Yeah, I was surprised that they did that, to be honest. I didn't think that they would do that, or at Mm. least, like, not do it in an extended way comparable to how the book did it. Yeah. And, yeah, like, I didn't feel like it was wasting my time or anything. Yeah, I didn't actually, like, time the three acts in the film, but I think, like, the first act is longest, and then the second act is shorter, and then the third act is, like, also fairly short in comparison. The third act felt long to me, but, like, again... (laughs) I I think the third act is longer than the second act, because the second act is just kind of playing through the same stuff. Whereas in the novel, the second act is just as long as the first act, I think. But, yeah, in the end, I thought the film was better in terms of being a thriller and handling the different twists, but, you know, I thought they were both kind of okay and maybe both a little bit overwrought and occasionally the film had some tonal issues Yeah, that sort of drew you out of the moment a little bit. Do you think we'll talk about uh, Sarah Waters' novel? 
Well, I mean, Tipping the Velvet is quite a famous queer Yes, novel. it is. That and Fingersmith constitute two parts of her sort of three-part exploration of Victorian lesbianism. Okay. And she's apparently since moved on to her more recent couple of books have been set in the 40s. Oh, okay. So yeah, maybe we can talk about one of those in the yeah. future. In like and... six months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maybe there'll be a convenient film adaptation that we can talk about. Maybe there will. Yeah, maybe yeah. that could happen. Hint, hint, Hollywood producers who are clearly listening to this podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So with that, uh, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Eli. If you have any feedback on this episode or other episodes, or if you would like to leave us a review or leave us comments uh, or send us suggestions or any other kind of content that you would like to communicate with us, you can find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Yes, we are still on Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's still a Tumblr as of recording. Yep. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yes. We're Queer as Fact on all things. Just Queer as Fact, not like Queer as Fact pod or anything. No, just Queer as Fact. And if you would like to email us, you can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and we'd love to receive reviews, particularly on iTunes and other um, podcasting platforms, because those reviews allow us to reach a wider audience. And that's really good. And it's been really nice to see the amount of people who've been downloading our episodes recently. It's been great. Keep doing it. Yeah, we uh, should hopefully hit 100,000 downloads in the next month or so, which is very exciting. And we're kind of blown away yeah we're gonna drink champagne about it <laughs> queer as fact we'll be back on the first of march with an episode that also deals with victorian era england yeah didn't plan that model <laughs> dealing with the infamous trial of stella bolton and fanny park we will be back with another queer as fiction episode on april 1st when we will be talking about a fantasy series just a fantasy series. <laughs> yeah, just a fantasy series. I'm not going to give you any more information than that. Yeah. <laughs> With that, we'll see you next time.